Welcome to Extraordinary, my retelling of the story of my almost rape and violent stabbing in 2018 from my perspective, as well as from the perspectives of some of my closest friends and family. My hope is that this story and the stories of the extraordinary people who helped me along the way will inspire a better understanding of the effects of extreme violence, PTSD, and recovery on individuals and the people supporting them. Thank you so much for listening. And you can follow along on our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast, to see the photos, videos, and helpful resources that correspond to the content of every episode. And please, 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 if you are a survivor or someone suffering from the effects of sexual assault, violence, or PTSD, take care while listening. So in the last episode, I took you through the night of my attack in February of 2018. And in this episode, I'm going to walk you through my immediate steps right afterward and the police manhunt for the man who did this to me. Um, so immediately after he ran out um, my front door, I went back into my apartment, like I said in the last episode, and saw all the blood. I looked at myself in the mirror. I went to go get my cell phone, and I tried to call an ex-boyfriend several times and finally called 911. I petitioned the city of Santa Monica to release my records because um, this evidence is public record. Um, so I have the actual 911 phone call and I, I remember hearing it for the first time in court. Um, and it really affected me to hear how my voice sounded. Um, you know, I, I remember calling 911. I, I don't, you'll hear that I get transferred to the fire department. And I remember being a little bit confused, and you'll kind of hear it in my voice. I think I'm also a little bit frustrated, <laughs> um, which you'll also hear in my voice. Um, but while I'm calling 911, I'm standing in the bathroom in my apartment. I st- He had just run out, and I was still unsure because he had fumbled with the door on his way out. I was still unsure how he had gotten in, so I was afraid that he could come back. Um, but here are the 911 calls. 911 emergency, Osorio. Frank, someone just broke into my house and tried to rape me and like, cut my finger off. What's your address? It's 1714 5th Street. Okay, when did this happen? Yeah, I'm bleeding a lot. Okay. How was it cut? What? How was it cut? It was a knife. He cut my head and cut my my left finger off. Okay. We're gonna get you some help, okay? Is there a gate code there? What? Is there a gate code there? No, it's apartment number one. Okay. Which way did the person go? What was that? I don't know. He locked the door. Okay. (laughs) 
one, okay? Listen to me. We're getting help on the way. What I'm going to do is transfer your fires so we can help you with the blood, okay? Okay. I want one emergency, McDowell. Hello. What's the address? 
I wasn't sure if it was him trying to trick me, if it was really the police. But I, I remember walking out and seeing the police officers in the yard. And I think there were three police officers in the yard. And like I said in the last episode, when I looked at myself in the mirror, all I saw was red um, because my head injuries had been bleeding so much that I just had blood streaked down my face. And I had tried to to wipe it off and wash it off um, while I was on the phone with the 911 operators. But uh, I remember one of the officers looking at me and seeing his eyes and his eyes just got really big and he looked shocked um and they asked immediately uh where did where did he go because I had told the the 911 operators that someone had attacked me and I pointed to the left outside my door uh I had seen him run uh around the the side of the building and pointed to the officer and one of the officers took took off running immediately and I set down my cell phone on a side table and walked out and right away I think firefighters came rushing up and I sat down on my stoop it was a two-step kind of stoop out my door sat down and they started checking me over for injuries and explaining to me because at at that point I still didn't really quite understand how badly I'd been hurt. So what you're about to hear is released uh, body cam footage from the first officers on the scene. Roger, thank you. Can I just get a couple of four, right? I just want to clean the ones up. Okay, all right. We're gonna take care of you. Yeah. In the next episode, you'll follow along with me and the firefighters in the ambulance. Um, but in this episode, I want to stay with the perspective of the police and take you through retracing his steps um, as the police chase him through Santa Monica. So just to give you kind of a feel um, for where I lived and the neighborhood that I lived in, I lived in a a little two-bedroom apartment in Santa Monica, which is a beachside city in Los Angeles, and I lived about four blocks away from the ocean in this little older apartment building, Um, and it was under rent control, so it was so cheap for what it was, and I had a small backyard, and I had lived there for about two or three years, um, and I I loved it. Um, it was a it was definitely an older building. It was probably built in the fifties or sixties, and when I moved in, everything, including the stove, was pink and teal, and 
like banana yellow. So I worked on it and I was trying to fix it up um, and trying to make it a place that I could stay long term uh, because like I said, it was, it was close to the beach. It was close to an outdoor mall called the Santa Monica Promenade. It was close to Main Street, which is another cute shopping and restaurant area uh, in Santa Monica. So I really, I enjoyed it there. I liked it there. And I'd lived there for about two or three years. Um, But what was interesting about the apartment building that I lived in was that it was in, the location was, itself was, somewhat of an armpit of an area and I say that because the the apartment building was located at fourth and Olympic in Santa Monica and if you know those cross streets it's it's actually kitty corner from the police station but it's a very commercial feeling area and my apartment building it kind of went down a little bit lower than the street level and to the north was bordered by an embankment that went up to to the the 10 freeway. So it was really close to the freeway but kind of lower down this uh embankment that was basically the perimeter of my backyard. Then to the west, so towards the ocean was the the DoubleTree Hotel in Santa Monica. And the apartment building was owned by the DoubleTree um, although I think reluctantly owned by the Doubletree because the I think the city of Santa Monica wouldn't let them level it um, to create more parking. So it was a, a lot of the residents had lived there for 15 to 30 years. There were families living in that apartment building. It was maybe eight units. Um, and then to the or no, to the south um, was the Santa Monica High School and the Santa Monica High School baseball fields. So part of that was getting whistled at by 16-year-old boys <laughs> when I would walk to my car. But it, you know, it felt very hidden um, from sight, which, you know, I think probably also played a part in that location being somewhat of an unsafe place to live. So as I was taken away in the ambulance, um, if you remember me saying that I saw the man who did this to me run out the front door and to the left and a police officer started running in that direction on foot, um, that direction was north, um, north and west through the parking lot of my building. And the police officer pretty quickly was able to see that there was a trail of blood leading through that parking lot and a red hat. Um, And if you remember in the 911 call that you heard earlier in this episode, I mentioned to the 911 operator that the man who did this to me was wearing a hat that was reddish. Um, So the police officer saw this hat and saw this trail of blood. And trail of blood, I've seen, and I'll I'll be able to share on um, the Extraordinary.podcast account, um, 
actual the the photos of the evidence of these blood this blood trail um but really it was a series of blood drips of blood every so many feet you could see almost like the size of a dime um these droplets of blood that led on a trail through the parking lot of my building um up past the Doubletree Hotel to the sidewalk and then um, across Olympic moving north. So they continued tracing these blood droplets north to Colorado Boulevard, which is about two blocks away from my apartment, and then east all the way to 12th and Colorado where the blood droplets then veered north again and down um, into a kind of a subterranean area that led to a parking garage of an apartment building. And there the police found more blood and a discarded bloody sweatshirt. The police at this point had launched a full-fledged search and they had deployed officers that were present at the crime scene. There were officers that were in pursuit um, of the man who did this to me um, and tracking the blood drips with blood dogs. They had the, if you live in LA or if you've seen movies that are based in LA, there's helicopters that that the police have to help when they're searching for someone. And um, there was a helicopter out looking for him, and by this time, the detective had been contacted and was on site who stayed with me and with the case um, over the years and throughout the investigation and the trial. So there were a lot of things happening at the crime scene as the pursuit unfolded. They were discovering, the police um, were discovering how he entered my apartment, which was they found an outdoor patio chair pulled up to one of the windows in my living room from the outside. And the screen to one of these big bay windows that were in my living room had been cut almost from top to bottom and was just kind of billowing in the wind. And that window security latch had been forcefully broken and you can see in photographs that the Christmas lights I was talking about that I had up in the living room um, were kind of like around the frame of these windows and it appeared that someone had stepped on some of the bulbs because they were bigger bulbs and that they were the glass was smashed on the floor Um, in addition to discovering how his probable entry, the police were photographing and taking note of the knife set in my kitchen. I mentioned that he, um, had taken one of the knives from a set that I had just purchased, um, from my kitchen and they documented all of the knives in that set. Two were still in the the holder and two had been used and were in the sink and one was missing. 
the one that he had taken. Um, in addition to those pieces, when he and I were fighting, he had, I guess, lost a couple of items on my bedroom floor while we were on the ground. And those items were a cell phone, um, which I'll be sharing photos of these pieces um, from the evidence, a cell phone with a cracked screen, um, I think two stolen credit cards and stolen because they were in other people's names, um, some headphones, and then a Metro tap pass card. Um, and then beyond that, they were documenting DNA because there was obviously blood at the scene and fingerprints, which you'll also see in photographs. The police had also reached out to the Doubletree Hotel, which I mentioned what flanked the, the apartment building to the west, to get any security footage that they may have had from that area, that um, intake area where they also had their dumpsters and, and different things like that, and trucks unloading. So they had reached out to the Doubletree Hotel, had captured some grainy security footage of a man who they believed was this suspect. And I'll go into in an, another episode why um, they knew or believed that this was the person that they were looking for. At this point in the chronology of that night and that morning, the news had been alerted to that a woman had been attacked in Santa Monica and that the man who did it was on the loose and that police were looking for him. An intense manhunt going on for a man who attacked and stabbed a woman overnight while she was sleeping. Now, since our report on this at 4 o'clock today, we've learned some new information about the attacker who is still on the run. NBC4's Patrick Healy live right now in Santa Monica with this new information on this attack. Patrick? Colleen, first off, this woman showing remarkable courage and quick thinking, not only fighting off the man with the knife who was in her first floor apartment, but the cut he got in the struggle may be the best clue to finding him. Copious blood down there. All that is blood. Brian Dietrich walked us down the trail of blood police found outside his condominium building. The path police believe was taken by the wounded and fleeing attacker who, nine blocks away, invaded a young woman's apartment early this morning, grabbed a kitchen knife, and demanded money. Neighbors unaware. And I don't hear anything about the voices, anything, you know? Police believe the intruder made his way in through a window, perhaps here where the screen has been torn. It happened in a post-war fourplex off Olympic and Fifth, just a block from the Santa Monica Civic Center, and yet somewhat isolated, surrounded by a double-tree hotel and an on-ramp to the Santa Monica freeway. The suspect jumped on top of her. A struggle ensued. The victim was able to fight her way off of the suspect. Police followed the fleeing attacker's bloody trail and came across this grainy security camera image of the suspect en route to 12th Street and found another clue just inside the unlocked gate to Detroit complex. This is where the bloody sweatshirt was discarded. He showed us how the trail led to the back gate to an alley and then ended. The suspect's whereabouts now a mystery. 
Some of the knife wounds to the face of the woman in her 20s. She has undergone surgery, is expected to recover. Police now going through more security camera video in hopes of finding a clearer image of the suspect, described as mid to late 20s, wearing camo pants and a red beanie. Live in Santa Monica, Patrick Healy, NBC4 News. Yeah, that victim, a young woman in her early 20s, she woke up to find a man with a knife on top of her in bed. Police say that man broke in through the front door here. What followed was a battle for her life. It's not a great look, but it's the best look available of the man Santa Monica police are searching for. They say he broke into this apartment, kitty corner to the police station, grabbed a knife from the kitchen and attacked a woman sleeping inside. The victim woke, woke, woke up, and at some point the uh, suspect jumped on top of her. She had multiple stab wounds and some lacerations about her body. She is in some serious condition and she is under surgery at this point. Police say the suspect took off running from the apartment, leaving a trail of blood behind from a knife wound to his hand. Police able to track that blood to this location on the 1500 block of 12th Street, about a mile away. There's blood that leads a little further beyond the 12th Street address that we are still continuing to work on. That's where what leads we're still working on that blood trail and then other evidence that we found in the in the uh, apartment itself. So there's some significant leads that we have and we're still working that actively. Key to finding him, security cameras. Investigators say the area around the attack is packed with them. So they're now canvassing for any images that may have been caught showing the suspect. As you know, anywhere in Santa Monica, there's a lot of surveillance videos, so we're trying to gather as much video as we can based on the trail that we have basically been able to establish and follow. We're hoping to find any video we can, can to try to see if we can identify the individual who did this. Now, that woman is in serious condition. If you have any information that could help lead investigators to this home invader, you are urged to call the Santa Monica Police Department. The number is on your screen. It's 310-458-8491. So, like the officer mentioned in that uh, last clip, the police had tracked him to this uh, 12th and Colorado address and found the bloody sweatshirt, um and knew that he had been there and had somehow escaped. And he said in that interview, there were a few droplets around, but somehow um, the suspect, the, the man who did this, had gotten away um, until later that morning when police received a phone call from a Metro employee who said that a car in one of the metro trains coming from Santa Monica had been completely saturated in blood. Um, so police tracked this down. They, they found the seat. They removed the seat for evidence. And they pulled security footage from all of the metro stations leaving Santa Monica that morning. And based on information from this metro employee, they were able to track him to the Bundy Station in Santa Monica and pull security footage from around the time they think he would have been there. Um, and they did find security footage of the man they were looking for. He had walked, and I'm not sure exactly how far it is, maybe two and a half miles um, from 12th and Colorado up to the Bundy Station in Santa Monica and in security footage, he's wearing a different outfit than he was in previous security footage from other sources and is walking calmly. 
but is holding his hand against his leg um, like he's maybe hiding an injury of some sort. So ultimately, he did escape police that night and that morning. Um, But the police were actively canvassing the area, collecting evidence at the crime scene, and pulling security footage from all of these local resources, um, as well as using the media to try to locate him with that blurry security footage. So that image was circulating. And at about this point, uh, the detective who I mentioned was heading to the hospital to get a statement from me uh, before I went into surgery. So the last thing that I want to take you through before the end of this episode is I want to introduce you to my mom because it was also around this time that she received a phone call from someone in the ER, in the ER telling her that I was there and why. And I think, I think her perspective is so important throughout this story and you'll hear from her again and again. Um, but this first moment I just think is crucial because it's, I think it's a, it was crushing for her to hear and it's terrifying for any parent to hear. Um, but there's so much, I just strength and I just, I'm in so much admiration for her throughout this whole process um, that I, I want to take you through her perspective from the very beginning. All right, I started recording. So then, not th- like any of this that you say or you want to say again, we can edit it. Okay. So that, so like if you say something, you're like, wait, I don't like that. Then I probably won't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but if you hear anything and you're like, oh God, I can give you another shot at it. Okay. Um, so do you want to first tell me who you are? Well, I'm your mother. Yeah. Yeah. And where do you live? Did you want give my name? Maybe your first or name. Lois. Yeah. And where yeah. do you live? I live in Wisconsin, right on the border of the Mississippi River. And you grew up there? I grew up here. Lived here all my life. Yeah. What's What's your favorite thing about lacrosse, about our city? Um, I think it is the summer <laughs> and the river. It's beautiful in the summer. It's very green and lush. The winters are very cold, though, so those are the, my least favorite. But it's very pretty. A lot of bluffs. It's funny. When people ask me what I really like about lacrosse, I say almost the exact same thing. <laughs> Do you really? Yeah. It's so green and the bluffs and the river. Pretty. But not the winter. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'm just going to go, I'm going to ask the questions from the list, but I'm probably also going to ask you other ones as things come up, if that's okay. 
Sure. Okay, so... You know that I'm really nervous. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Me Obviously. too. Yeah. We're not naturals. <laughs> no. Um, so, the night of my attack, back in 2018, do you remember getting that call and who called you? I do. Um, I remember talking to you the night before. Oh, you do? You were gonna, yeah, yeah. You were going to go get your hair done. And I was like, now don't do anything too drastic. <laughs> because I'll cry. <laughs> you know how, you, you'll cry. And then um, we went to bed. And then the next morning, Dave and I were in bed. And the phone rang at 6 in the morning. And there's a two-hour time difference. So that was why the phone rang at six, but um, it's unusual for us to get a call at six. We don't normally get up at that time. And so I grabbed the phone and didn't know what that could be. And obviously I was asleep. And so I was listening to this person on the other end of the phone. And I, I thought, what are you saying? This isn't true. Um, it was a social worker from the emergency room. and It was a lady, right? A woman? It was a lady, yeah. Yep. I remember her name, but I don't know if I'm supposed to say the people's names. Um, but um, she was telling me who she was and that you were in the hospital, that you were brought there, and she told me the name of the hospital was UCLA and the phone number and that you were attacked in your home. And I thought... I can't listen to this. This is a prank. You thought it was a prank? For a minute, for a second I did. Because you were you know, dead asleep. Yeah. And I just didn't believe it. And then she started saying your name and um, what, I asked her what happened and were you okay? And she said she's okay. And um, she started describing some of the wounds that you had. And I was just getting sicker by the minute, and... What did she say what wounds I had? She said um, knife wounds to oh, both arms and the hand. Um, she didn't say anything about whether or not you were raped, and I didn't ask. I couldn't. I just could not ask that question. Um, then she said you were going to go to surgery, and that I said, well, well, we're coming. We'll get there as soon as we can. And then she said, um, if you come, you have to use this code name because they're not giving out her name to people. Did and she so she told that? me the code name. And I wrote that down. And by now, Dave's like hovering over me like, what? What? You know? And I was going to say, were um, you sitting up in bed at that point? Oh, I was up. I was... I went out in the kitchen. I, as soon as I started to believe what she was saying, I needed to get a piece of paper to write down the phone number and uh, the code name and stuff. Um, so I wrote all that down and then um, hung up the phone and just like was in disbelief. Like this is something probably a lot of parents fear um, for, for their children, um, and girls, of course, 
parents fear all the time that they were raped. I was happy that you were not dead. Um, I asked about Cookie when she was on the phone, um, and she said someone was going to go over and check on them, that they're okay. Um, so, So then I had to tell Dave what happened, and I was shaking, and just felt like I was going to throw up. And um, we had planned that weekend to go to a girls weekend. So I had the day off work. So it was a Friday now. So it was six o'clock our time, four o'clock your time that she called. Um, And now I didn't have to work um, because we were going to go to this cabin with all the sisters and grandma and grandma was sleeping upstairs. Um, so I had to like figure stuff out really fast, like how I was gonna get off work, get to the hospital, get on a plane, get to get to California, let everybody know, make arrangements for mom, and all that stuff. It was I was like I wish I could have just like beamed myself there, but I I had to do all these logistical things to get there. So that was really frustrating and giving me a whole bunch of anxiety. So I, had to just, I hate even reliving this, so I don't want to talk about it. I know. I think um, that's the hardest part is, is these are not moments that are really fun to parse through. No, no. So the first thing I did is um, I said, is anybody with her? Because that was, I wanted somebody to be with. And she said, no, she's trying to get a hold of people. Um, so I said, I'll try to call. And I only had one of your friend's phone number and that was your ex-boyfriend. So I kept trying to call him and he didn't answer. So, um, I really regretted not having any of your friend's phone numbers at that point. Um, and I called Sean I needed to let your brothers and your dad know. So I called, uh, is it okay if I use their names? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, so I called. Uh, Sean and TJ, and if they don't want them, you can just edit it out. But um, I called them, and I called your dad. And, of course, they were feeling the same as me, like just devastated. Um, But Sean thought he could help by using FaceTime calling to try to call one of your friends that way because it has a different ring. So he was able to get a hold of one of your friends. I knew their names, and and but I just didn't know their phone numbers or anything. So he got a hold of one of them, and he was able to get to the hospital um, to be with you before you went to surgery, which was great. That was. Um, that was. Um, so then we just proceeded. I asked Dave to start looking for airline tickets. I went up and talked to Grandma, and... Of course, that was really hard for her, too. Um, yeah, what did Grandma say? Do you remember? She she was still sleeping, and I sat her up, and I said, I have to tell you something. And yeah, I don't remember exactly what she said, but she was, she was um, very sad and just sickened by it. Um, so well, she was, you guys got to get out there. Don't worry about me, that kind of thing. So... When something like this happens, I think you really realize the ripple effect of um, what a crime does to the victim. Obviously, is front and center and the most important 
it's terrible. But how many people it impacts, I don't know if if the court system really realizes that. Um, but you, it's family that you that you have to you need all of these people to support you to, through something like this. And I know people go through um, losing their children, which thank God isn't something we went through. But um, you need people to family to support you and help you and pick up the slack and help and figure out help you figure things out like logistics and you need your friends to support you and you need your work to support you so when you say something like I'm going to California and I don't know when I'm going to be back that's a big thing to say when you have a lot of responsibilities and all these people all these people just step up to the plate and that's what we had we had a huge ripple effect of support um, from everybody who loves you and wanted to help. So that is everything to catch you up to speed on the moments after my attacker ran out, Um, walk you through the police and their response that morning, Um, his escape path, Um, and you heard from my mom, um, I will be sharing photos of the, my apartment, um, the crime scene, uh, for people to see, um, and also be sharing the, the 911 calls on our Instagram account, um, extraordinary.podcast. And I, I just, again, as always, want to caution people that um, these photos are real, these phone calls are real, and they're, they're graphic, um, as you would imagine. So if you, if you are interested in, in seeing the scene, um, they're made available to you, but as always, please take care when taking in the story. Thank you so much for listening. Um, in the next episode, you'll follow me um, after I have walked out of the apartment and my experience with the firefighters into the ambulance, into the hospital, and reuniting with friends and family and better understanding uh, my injuries. So I hope you tune in and thank you again.